Oh, I think we've looked at six so far, and uh, we've got two more this Sunday and then uh, September long weekend. Um, and uh, it's an opportunity for us to realize that um, all of us are gifted in one way or another to, to be a witness for the gospel. And uh, we don't need to be like other people. We simply need to use the gifts that God has given to us and to share um, with others about what Jesus means to us. Uh, sort of the definition that we have been working with that uh, I've been trying to get into my mind and into yours is simply this. To, to witness is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and others to move one or more persons one step closer to Jesus Christ. I find that to be such an encouraging reminder that it doesn't all rest on my shoulders. It's not all up to me. Um, and primarily, it's up to God. He uses me as an instrument of His, and, but He doesn't just use me in the life of others. He combines my work with the work of others, and it's not necessarily up to me to see somebody step into the kingdom of God. I simply need to move them one step closer to the kingdom of God. I find that to be such a, a helpful way of looking at what it means to be a witness. And this morning, our, our, our look is uh, on, on a word. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the word, some of you not. Uh, apo- apologetics. It's, um, it's a, a word that uh, can mean lots of things and can scare people. But to, to be an apologist is, is simply to be one who is not always saying, I'm sorry I'm a Christian, I'm sorry I'm a Christian. I apologize for being a Christian today. Um, an apologist is one who makes a defense of the faith who defends their beliefs in Jesus Christ. And you think, well, that's not up to me to do. I'm not really gifted at that. Well, Peter would say maybe something a little bit different. He says, but in your hearts regard Christ as Lord, uh, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or an apology to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. So to be an apologist is simply to be one who defends what they believe, who defends what they stand for. And we're looking at a passage this morning, Acts chapter 17, which is a passage that describes the longest sermon in the Bible that's dedicated to, to a context in which there was no knowledge of God. It's not written to people who, who understood the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament. It's not written to Greeks who had a bit of a biblical knowledge. It's written to those who have no knowledge of the Bible and no knowledge of God whatsoever. And it's Paul's sermon towards these people. So in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it begins this way. And while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day, with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some says, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I find also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of humankind to live on the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. For one of your prophets has said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. At times of ignorance God overlooked, it. now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the earth in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Father, thanks for a little bit of time now in your word. And uh, Father, we just pray that your spirit would be um, here today, that as we are hearers of your word, that um, we would also be doers of your word. As we are hearers of your word here this morning, that we would not leave here and just kind of flip it off and blow it off and say, well, it doesn't really apply to me or make a difference in my life. But Father, would our hearing move down into our hearts and so that it becomes a choosing and a doing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we find when we look at this in verse uh, 16 is that Paul had a provoked spirit. Here is Paul hanging around in the city of Athens and he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to come and join him. And I thought, well, what what would you do if you were in a city like Athens and had some time to kill? Athens is a, is, is a city that um, by this time was on its, the sunset of its glory, but back in the 5th and the 4th centuries BC, it had just been at the height of its glory. It was a city that would have been relishing its military glories. It had had some astounding victories over the Persians. Its architecture was stunning. It had magnificent homes and temples. Its politics um, was novel and new, and in fact, its, poli- its political discussions are the basis of our politics today. If you were into the arts and the theater, you could go from corner to corner and from, from uh, setting to setting and go to a different play and hear a different recitation almost every day of the week. Uh, if you were intellectually inclined, you could easily find a corner or a marketplace or somewhere and talk the latest philosophy or the latest thing that came along. And so uh, it was full of that sort of discussion. It's art uh, is world-renowned. It is some of the, some of the initial uh, um, uh, work in, in carving out of stone. And so it would have just been a fabulous place to spend uh, a week as you're wake, waiting for your buddies. But what you don't find Paul doing is, is just that. It, it, rather, you find him having a paroxysm, a fit, a convulsion. He is provoked in his spirit. As he looks around this city, he, he doesn't see all the human accomplishments. He, he doesn't see all the material um, beauty that's there. He sees past that and he sees the spiritual reality of the city. And the thing that's driving him nuts is these people have no knowledge of God. These people ha- have, have a spirituality, but it's misdirected. What he sees around him is a city full of idols. And it says, one has said that in Athens, it was easier to find a God than a man. He saw men and women that, that were in need of a Savior and yet were blind and were lost. And I thought, well, what about Parksville? What about our, our own community in which we live? Do we see idolatry around us? Do we see it as a fundamental spiritual issue that people are wrestling with? Someone has written that the heart is a human idol factory. And if that is the case, then I would say, well, yeah, there probably should be evidence of idolatry all around Parksville. 
And the truth of the matter is the only thing that God ever intended for us to worship is to worship Him. And so idolatry is anything that takes the place of God in our life. Anything that takes the place of preeminence of God in our life. Uh, so anything that is more important to us than God. Anything that is more important for our money or for our time than God. Any person or anything that takes preeminence before God in our lives is an idol. I was uh, listening to a, a number of clips from Mark Driscoll this past week on idolatry. He has a lot to say about idolatry, some fascinating things, but he was telling about one trip that he took to India. And as he was uh, in some backcountry place in India, he was walking down a road and he came across one of the, the many, many shrines there. But this was a roadside shrine. It was an idol. It had an idol in it. And there was the, the evidence of certainly a fresh sacrifice with chicken feathers and the blood splattered all over the idol. And he was, uh, as he was sort of contemplating and looking at this, a lady had come up and he engaged this lady in a conversation and part of the conversation turned to, well, had she ever been to the United States? And she says, well, yeah, I went to the United States, but I, but I don't want to go back. And his comment was, well, why don't you want to go back? And she says, well, it's full of idolatry. And he says, well, what do you mean? And she says, well, in America, they worship their stomachs. On almost every corner, there is a restaurant. She says, in America, they worship sports. There are these monuments and these idols of sports everywhere in America. She says in America they worship their TVs. You go into their homes and their, their couches and their chairs are all, all arranged around these TVs. She says, I don't want to go back to America because it's full of idolatry. We hear that and it kind of shocks us and we, we sort of chuckle, but it's another person's observation of what we worship. And what occupies our attention and what has first place in our life. And here we worship the way that we look. We worship the way that we dress. We worship our, our bodies. We worship pop stars, movie stars. We worship hockey stars, uh, business moguls. We, 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 we worship alcohol. We worship drugs. We worship our spouses. Some worship their gardens. Others worship their investments. Some worship their cars. Some worship their retirement. It's things that occupy and preoccupy their main use of their time and their money and their energy. There's idols all around us. And, and, and you think, well, and I was thinking to myself, well, if that's really the case, maybe it's, maybe it's not that obvious to you. It, it certainly might be a little bit obvious to you. But if, if idolatry was not a problem, if God was the true object of worship in Parksville and Qualicum, then wouldn't we expect that this church would be full of people from 8 o'clock to the close at night of people worshiping the one true God? So idolatry is rampant even in Parksville. And when you think about the combination of apologetics and, 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 and idolatry, it begins with being bugged by the spiritual realities that we see around us. We, we, we are bugged that people are worshipping other gods. They are worshipping other things rather than the one true God of the Bible. We preach Christ not because Christianity is, a merely, is merely superior philosophy or worldview, nor because we have been smart enough to embrace the gospel but because we have met the Savior, because we have been claimed by His love as we just sang, because we are being transformed into His likeness, and it's our heart's desire that more and more people find Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior as well. One person wrote, I fear that we have become too accultured, too blind, too unimpressed with the paganisms and idolatries all around us. We betray a comfort level that Paul would certainly see as scandalous. 
Where is the gripping realization that millions of men and women are slaves to the idols of our age? Where is the courage to confront the idols on their own ground? So Paul was disturbed by the level of idolatry that he saw around him as he walked into Athens. It's fascinating to me that, that what does a person do then? What is, what, what's one of the, the responses to that? Well, it, Paul begins by, by talking about what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. It's utterly unique, and that is Jesus Christ and the resurrection. In verse 18, he mentions that, that that is the, that is the, 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 the center that is which everything else hangs on. That's what the story of the Bible is about, is about Jesus Christ, God who became man, who dwelt among us, who lived a perfect life, who died in our place, who paid the penalty for our sins, who was buried, who was raised by God, and now lives in heaven above. That is the central message of Christianity. And Paul, that's what he went around beginning to talk about. So in this culture where they worshipped other stuff, Paul said, well, this is what sets Christianity apart. Paul focused on that. The whole gospel story is contained in Jesus Christ. And then he, he, he is, he's aware of this spiritual confusion that's there. They are enamored, or enamored with everything that's novel, novel and trendy. You begin to see that Paul started by going to the synagogue. Well, that's where the Jewish people were. And he was talking to them and, 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 and questioning them and talking about Jesus and his resurrection. There were some devout Greeks that were there, so they were there. But then Paul began to move out into the marketplace. The marketplace was where people just gathered um, throughout the day to talk about what was going on in their lives. And I thought, well, what are some of the marketplaces in Parksville? Well, the marketplaces might be Starbucks. It might be A&W. It might be Tim Hortons. Uh, they, they might be some other gathering point. It's but where people gather together and they talk about the news. They talk about what's happening around the world. They talk about the latest sports stuff. They, they talk about the latest crime wave. They just talk about life stuff. Well, that's where Paul went to also talk about spiritual stuff and to introduce Jesus Christ and to introduce the, the gospel or to introduce the resurrection. So he's talking in the marketplaces and then he's going out and he's also engaging with the thoughts of some people. And he, he mentions too the Epicureans and the Stoics. Just very briefly about what these two individuals or schools of thought believe. The, the Epicureans, they believed that the chief goal of life was to obtain the maximum amount of pleasure with the minimum amount of pain. Does that not sound oddly familiar? How many people around us do we see living life in such a way that they can gain the maximum amount of pleasure with the minimum amount of pain? And the Epicureans had no concept or no belief in anything after death. Once you die, that was it. So it's in, in effect, they said, this life is all there is. You only go around once, so if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, stay away from it. Avoid what hurts. In other words, for them, pleasure was first. Do whatever pleases me. Avoid pain was second. And as Paul was listening to this, he was, as he was walking around the city, he was bothered by that way of thinking. He was bothered by the fact that these people had no concept of the truth. They had no concept of the, the reality that awaited them after death. They had no concept about how to live in a way that gave meaning to life. And so he was embracing them and in, engaging their thought. He was also engaging the Stoics. They held that life is filled with both good and bad. That you cannot really avoid bad, so what you have to do is grin and bear it. Got a lot of those kind of people too, don't we? 
this, well, I, I, I really can't control anything. And when stuff happens in my life, the best thing to do is just kind of, I can do this. I can, get, I can get myself through it. They say, I can't control everything that is going on out there. Things are going to happen to me that I won't like, but I'm in charge of myself. Therefore, I'm going to stand tall, stick out my chin and take it, whatever comes my way. These are, there is nothing new under the sun. And those are the same kinds of things that are, that are still part of our culture today. The same kind of ways that people think. And so Paul is engaging them with a, with, with a defense of Christianity, with a defense of, of, of the Christian way of thinking. And some have accused him of babbling. Some accused him of saying new and novel things. Notice they said he was presenting a new teaching. Some said he was proclaiming strange things to them. It should be no shock to you, although it's hard for us to understand because many of us, we've known church for a long time. We've grown up in Christian homes. We've grown up with the Bible. We've grown up with Christian parents. So this is very hard for some to understand here today. But you know that there are some people, there are many people, there are thousands of people that are just outside these walls that have never heard the gospel. And when you would go to them and say, you know, there is something to life after death, they go, what are you talking about, man? Are you nuts? If you were, if you were to go and talk to them about a man named Jesus Christ who came and lived and died and, uh, and was raised from the dead, they say, man, you're on something. Because that, that just is not on, that's just too weird for me. And what, what we think is, 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 is common and familiar is strange and new to thousands upon thousands of people that live across our streets, that live beside us, that work beside us, that go to school with us. We do not live in a Christian culture any longer. We live in a post-Christian culture. And so the same reactions that Paul was getting back in Athens 2,000 years ago are the same reactions that you will get today. Strange. You're talking weird stuff. They were amused at this notion that they are sinners against God. You see, not many people think this concept relevant anymore. They, they don't see sin as an issue. There's, there, what our world has done is they've taken sin from being an objective sort of moral um, wrong against God and they've turned it into a social construct. So in other words, sin is now a product of where you live. It's a product of the group of people that you hang around with. It's a product of the community or the country that you live in. And so they say, well, this is wrong, so that's a sin. Or they say that this is wrong, so that's a sin. But what's wrong for them is not wrong for me. And what's wrong for you is not wrong for them. It's just something that's devised by the environment in which we live. Well, if that's the case, then what happens to guilt? What happens to shame? If that's the case, then, then all guilt is is psychological pressure. It's just pressure that comes from the group because I'm not doing what they have determined is right or wrong. And so then there's no real need to deal with that. There's no real eternal consequences to that. If, if, if so, it, it's something that you feel because of the social pressure of the group that you associate with. And so if that's how people think, then to talk about the cross is, is, is mumble to them. What do you mean sin is something that I commit against God? What do you mean guilt is something that I feel because I've offended God? There's no thinking or concept of that. And so this is what Paul is wrestling with them. One of the most difficult areas to deal with today is this idea of sin. 
We don't have a concept for it any longer. And so we assume that we need therapy. My issues are because of the way I was raised. We blame something on or everything on everybody else. And so I just need therapy where the gospel says we need salvation. We want to work it out ourselves. The gospel says that will lead to death. We want to look within. The gospel points us to Christ. We want to, to do our own part. The, the gospel insists that Jesus paid it all. We demand that we get what we deserve. The gospel says that is exactly what you will receive unless you turn to Jesus Christ. So there was spiritual confusion. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a spiritual hunger amongst these people. You know, just because people do not embrace Christianity does not mean they are not looking for something. It doesn't mean that there is a spiritual void in their systems. We live in an amazingly spiritual time. Whether people worship nature, whether they worship themselves, whether they worship other gods or other religions, people, there is a longing and there is a realization that there is more to life than the physical. There is more to life than just themselves. And so there's this spiritual hunger that's, that's evident around us, all around us. You, you see it in the bookstores, you see it on the movies. Uh, it, it, there's a spiritual hunger and why, that should be the case. Because we're made in the image of God. And if we're made in the image of God, then we have this orientation or this, this compass swing back to, where did I come from? Um, there's, more to, there's more to life than just what I see around me. And so, just because people don't embrace Christianity doesn't mean they're not spiritual. It doesn't mean they're not searching for something. And so, Paul was dragged before this Areopagus which is Athens' sort of chief legislative and judicial council. They were the group that, bought, uh, that licensed uh, people who could speak on Mars Hill and talk about their philosophies or their ideas. And Paul said to them, he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He recognized in them a spiritual searching, a spiritual hunger. They were known for their piety. It was obvious. Paul says, just look around the city. There are idols everywhere. And in fact, they had a God in the back pocket. They had an idol to an unknown God. It was, it was in case we, we've missed something, then we've got this, this, this one sort of unknown God. Now, there's a, there's a whole history of how that came, starting at the 6th century, and we, don't, we won't look at it this morning, but you can look that up, of, of what's behind this unknown God. But they, they thought, well, I better cover this basis. We've got hundreds of gods, but we might have missed one. I just heard somewhere about how many gods there are actually in India. There are thousands upon thousands of gods. And so here, they have hundreds upon hundreds of gods, but they also have a god in the back pocket, an unknown god, just in case they miss something. Athens was, was known for what we call polytheism. That means just the worship of many gods, multiple gods. All of their gods were finite, though. They all had personalities. Many of them had quirks, weaknesses, some had evils, some were eccentric, some had sins, some had needs. And the way pagan religion worked was that you would go into the temple of the particular god in question, 
and you would give that God the kind of thing that that God wants. You scratch the God's back by making a specific sacrifice, by making a donation to his temple, or by engaging in some prescribed ritual, then maybe that God would give you something that you needed. So if you were going to go on a fishing trip and you wanted to have good weather and catch lots of fish, you would go to the temple of, the Nep- of Neptune and you would do your stuff before Neptune so that by scratching his back, then he would scratch your back and he would give you a good, successful fishing trip. They had gods for all that kind of stuff. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. If we're honest, some who think of themselves as Christians also have this kind of relationship with God. I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. If you're good enough, you'll get happily married. If you have your devotions every day, then things will go well with you and you won't get cancer until you're 96. If you're honest at work, you will not lose your job as other people have. If you always say your prayers, your kids will never rebel. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. The problem with this model, though, is that it assumes, it presupposes that God has needs. And therefore, you can really offer God something that he needs and therefore wants. That's what their religion was all about. You can manipulate the God. You can control their God. You can give them something they need, and they will in turn give you something that you need. Paul is trying to say to them, that is so wrong-headed. That is not true. And his emphasis is on their ignorance, not on their worship. So then how does one talk to people who have, uh, who have a spiritual hunger, but no concept of the God of the Scriptures? How does one talk to people who worship all kinds of idols, but don't worship the God of the Bible? Well, in, in a nutshell, he begins by saying God is knowable. The God of the Bible is knowable. This unknown God that you have, I want to tell you about him. This is just beautiful stuff. You're worshiping all this stuff and you've got this extra God just in case. I want to tell you about who that God is. The unknown God can be known. First thing that he says, and you will see how this just takes their world and turns it upside down. The first thing he says is in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord and Lord of heaven and earth. This is the first thing about the Christian God that sets it apart and sets him apart from every other God. He made the world and everything in it. I have been struck this week as I've been reading the Bible just in my regular devotions how many times I have come across that phrase in in different ways again and again. God made the heavens and everything in it. God made the seas and everything in it. God made the world and everything in it. The God that we worship is the God that made this all. And he is a God that is the Lord of this all. In other words, it's his. He controls it, he maintains it, he upholds it, he sustains it. This is my Father's world. That's what we believe. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's how God has revealed himself to us. So you cannot manipulate him. He doesn't live in temples made by man. He can't be domesticated or controlled. He can't be put in a box and limited. You can't can't control God by performing rituals and rites and so force him to do something for him. This is his world. The second thing that you see in there in verse 25 is, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now, this is really hard for many of us to get into our hearts and into our minds. But it's this simple truth. God does not need you. God does not need me. There is nothing that I provide God that he doesn't have on his own. It's the revelation throughout Scripture. 
He does not need our worship. He does not need our money. He does not need us. He is in no way dependent on us. We can't feed him. We can't give him drinks. We don't carry him. There is nothing that we can supply him. In eternity past, he was God. In eternity present, he's God. In eternity future, he'll be God. He has been entirely full of joy and contentment in, in, in himself and in, in the relationships within the Trinity. So he is self-sufficient, he is independent, and he is doing just fine. This is a startling contrast to what the Athenians believed and even sometimes what we believe. This God made everything that there is and he doesn't need me to provide him anything. See, this is what Paul quickly says and this is so stunning. God does not need us, but I am absolutely and completely and totally dependent upon him. You see what the the scripture says there? He himself gives life and breath and everything to all mankind. That's stunning. And that that should cause us to kind of think a little bit. I don't, or God doesn't need me, but I am absolutely and totally and completely dependent on him for life, for breath, for everything. That's the God of the Bible. How radical is this? How different from all your other gods? How humbling to know that my life, my breath, my everything comes to me from God. When Jesus came to the earth, he taught that not a sparrow falls from the heavens without God's sanction. He talked about how the very very hairs on your head are numbered. Every breath I draw is because God says breathe. I am dependent upon him. And Paul reminds us about this thing. I am not the creator. I am not God. God is. And then he goes on very quickly. Verse 26. God's way with man. God God is the creator of all things. And God is the creator of man in particular. This is another stunning sort of reality. That our, our history is not... Um, cyclical. Our history is not random. Rather, the history of the world is linear. It has a beginning and it has an ending point. And he begins by saying, this God that made this world and everything in it, this God made from one man every nation of mankind. We all trans, we can all trace our lineage and our history back to one man, Adam. This is the God of the Bible. He says, secondly, he's a God of purpose, that he designed us or he created us to live on the face of this earth. He designed that we would populate this earth, that we would live around this beautiful world that he has created. He affirms sovereignty there. Notice what it says in verse 26, that that he has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. I just find that so comforting. Because that tells me that life is not random. That tells me that life is not um, purposeless. That tells me that God has a purpose and a place for me in this world. He has determined the boundaries in the exact time and the place that I am going to live. It is, it, is, it is not by chance that you live on this island. It is not by chance that you are here this morning. God has determined all of that and I find that amazing. God has purpose for me. God has designed purpose for me. Isn't this the kind of God you would want to worship? 
Isn't this a kind of God that, that you want to give your life to? One who doesn't need you, but one who you're totally dependent on him. One who gives purpose and meaning and place in your life. And, and not just that. You know, deism says, well, God just created the world, spun it around, flung it out into space, and he sits back on his easy chair and he watches it unfold. That's not the God of the Bible. And you see that most clearly in Jesus Christ where it says God became man and dwelt among us. God is intimately involved in the affairs of this world. And notice what he says there. God's intention for us. He did all of this. Why? So that you should seek him. I've had people say, well, God doesn't want to be found. There is no God. I can't find him. He's nowhere around. It's not the God of the Bible. The Bible goes out of its way and God goes out of its way in the Bible that says that God wants to be found. That God wants us to seek him. You say, well, that's not true. It is. The heavens declare the glory of God. Every time you go outside, every time you go into your garden, every time you go out in your boat, every time you go camping, every time you fly in a plane, every time you look up into space, God is revealing himself to you. God has revealed himself in the word. He's given us the Bible so that we might know about him. God has revealed himself inside of us. Why do you have this nagging understanding that there might be right and wrong? Why do you feel bad when you do stuff that is evil? It's because God has placed his law within you. Because God will not let you go. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In him was the fullness of deity in bodily form. So when we look at Jesus Christ, that is God revealed. That is God making himself known. So God is, Paul is saying here that God has placed you in the exact place that you live so that you should seek him and he is not far from you. He says, in the hope that you might feel your way towards him and find him. Paul uses a word here for reaching out or feeling after God and finding him that the Greek poet Homer used in the well-known story of the Cyclops. That giant one-eyed Cyclops, some of you are familiar with that story, had captured Odysseus and his men. And Odysseus had gotten him drunk and then taken a sharp stake and plowed it in his one good eye. But then they wanted to sneak out of the cave, obviously, and get away. Um, and, uh, but it was difficult because the Cyclops was groping around. He was feeling after Odysseus so that he might find him and kill him. And that's the very word that Paul uses here. So it's as if he's saying, in our sin we are blind as the blinded Cyclops. Um, and and, and, and we're, 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 we're groveling around. We're looking to find God. And he's not actually far from us, for in him we live and move and have our being. This is what Paul is saying to these people. He's what he's saying to you and I. This is the God of the Bible. He has made everything. You depend on him for everything. He has determined the place of your life. He wants to be found by you. And he says to them, ignorance is, or we, we sometimes say ignorance is bliss, but Paul says here, spiritual ignorance is inexcusable. Why should I obey God? If he wants me to, or if he wants to take me in directions that I don't like, who is he to tell me what to do? Surely I'm free to choose other gods or invent my own. Who is he to boss me around? We defy God with our rebellion. But if God made you, if he designed you, then we owe him everything. We owe him our life. We owe him our obedience. We, 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 we owe following after him. 
we ought not to joy in being out of step with our maker. When I fight against God, when I fight against my creator, I not only fight against myself, but I fight against the one who made me. He made us. We owe him. If we don't recognize this one simple truth, then according to this text, the blindness is itself a mark of how alienated we are from God. See, it's for our good that we recognize it, not because he is a supreme bully. God's not a bully. God's not up there to make our lives miserable. But without God, we would not even be here. And we will certainly have to give account to him one day. See, that's what, this is where Paul gets at. It's not just enough to talk about the gospel. It's not just enough to talk about the God of the Bible. He says, so what are we to do then in front of this known God who at one time was unknown? In a single word, he says, repent. That is what God calls us to do. Repent. What was true then is true today. We need to repent of our idolatry. We need to repent of our rebellion. We need to repent of our turning away from God. And we need to turn to God. Why repent? Well, he says here, God is patient. He has been overlooking your ignorance for a time. From creation, God overlooked our sinfulness and our rebellion. And, and he didn't punish it. He didn't excuse it. But he, he, he overlooked it until Christ came and paid the penalty for him. And now he says, you need to repent. Enough of that, enough of that rebellion. Turn to me. Second thing, and this is amazing, God commands repentance. How can you say, how does God command it? Well, he made you. He made me. God knows what's best for you and I. And God knows that when we're walking in rebellion for him, our life will never be what he intended to be. And so God says, repent. Turn out of your ignorance towards me. Turn out of your idolatry towards me. Turn away from false gods to the true God. Repent. It's the only alternative. Repent. And then thirdly, why repent? Because God has appointed a day of reckoning. We don't much like to hear this kind of stuff, but there is coming a day of judgment through Jesus Christ. This is what he says here, because he has fixed a day. There is a set day, beloved. There is a fixed day in which God is going to come back and he's going to judge the world. And it's, it's, it's a universal day where he says he's going to judge the whole world. It's not like I'm going to be able to slip under his radar screen or I'm going to sort of be able to hide over here. There's a fixed day in which God is going to judge the whole world. And, and not only that, it's a, it's a, it will be a fair judgment. It will be justice. We, we all cry out for justice, don't we? We all want justice to happen. When we see justice not happen in, in sentences or in situations that we're involved in, we, I just want justice. Well, beloved, know that on that fixed day, when the whole world is judged, it will be with a just judgment. And it will be personal. It will be the, with the man, Jesus Christ, who will stand as God's appointed judge, who God raised from the dead. This is what it means to defend the faith, loved ones, to just talk about Jesus and the resurrection, to talk about the God of the Bible versus all the gods that people worship around us. 